Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to another episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bryan, with my co-host, Jim Resky. Tonight, we're going to tackle at least one book, Ecclesiastes, which is one of the most fascinating books of the Bible. Don't you think so, Jim? I love it, Greg. I love it. So actually, um, it's been my, my favorite book of the Bible for a long time. Really? Yes. You have like a favorite verse? From the book of Ecclesiastes or no, certain uh, passages? I, different passages, but I uh, just love the overall feel of it. So um, so by the way, it's great to be with you tonight. Just for our listeners, this what we're doing tonight is what we usually do. I'm going to be teaching on the book of Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs together um, next week. And so what Greg and I do is kind of have a... Uh, podcast where we read it together or read some passages, look at it and talk about it and wrestle with it together. Kind of cold, but we, you know, go through it. And then uh, we'll take the actual talk that we give and post that. And then we have the uh, debrief or what I forget what we're calling it, Greg, but the post-op, the call where we go back and say, let's the all things want to the say. After, the, the after talk, the, the talk after we talk. wish we would have given. Exactly. The repair repair work. <laughs> Wish I hadn't said that or whatever. So we'll do that later. But this is the uh, pre-talk for Ecclesiastes, and maybe if we go a little crazy, Song of Song of Solomon. The cool thing about Ecclesiastes is it's all about the search for significance or the quest for contentment and the the and or the pursuit of purpose in life. I mean, oh. those topics. These are like huge topics that are addressed in this book and. I pulled out one of my old Bibles, like one of you probably have a Bible like this, like I've got duct tape on it. Yeah. Um, it's the one Bible I use for many, many, many years. Yeah. And I underline, I have so many different verses underlined um, in the book of Ecclesiastes because, and it's all about this, those three things, significance, contentment, and purpose. Mm. Um, so and you know it and it's just kind of fascinating because it's written by song of Sol- or um solomon right we know it's written most, by solomon well most people think he doesn't actually say written i am solomon writing this he says i the preacher son of david right so who who was the wise son of david it's pretty obvious it's solomon he's pretty universally even though he doesn't say in the actual text i think it's been in tradition almost universally agree that it's solomon writing it yeah so what is your idea of like the overview of the of the the book well it's it's part of wisdom literature so i'll tell you why i like it so much in a personal level i mean when i was gave my life to christ when i was 14 and i remember sometime around that time like when i was 14 sitting on the back deck and reading the book of proverbs almost straight through it and i remember not finishing it but i read like 20 chapters in a row and that was one of the first times i just read a whole chunk of scripture in a row. And it I remember really distinctly, really impressing me how important wisdom was, you know, how 
That's what Proverbs is, wisdom literature. If you live this way, life will go better. Live according to these biblical principles, good things will happen. And if you don't, curses, right? And it's the, the need for wisdom impressed me. And then not long after that, while I was still a teenager, I remember reading Ecclesiastes and thinking, wow, this is so different. It's so, and the feeling I had at the time was it's so authentic. This mm. is something that's really, really bearing their soul and wrestling. What does it really mean? What is life about? It's experiential. And, Good word, Greg. You're right. It's experiential, right? That's really good. It's so much about, it's almost, and, and and this is why it fits Solomon so well, right? Because he had all the wealth, all the riches. So he he could just go all in and try stuff. Yeah. And so you see, you know, one of the big themes is everything is vanity. Everything right. is vanity. And right. there's the vanity of doing things. There's the right. vanity of having things. There's the vanity of being Doing um, and being—that's interesting. It's a good way to think about it. Yeah, that's, that's one of the one of the outlines that I kind of discovered as I was doing some research. Everything's vanity. Chapter one, chapter two, the the vanity of doing things. Chapter three to six, the vanity of having things. Mm -hmm. And then chapter seven through nine, the the vanity of of being. Of um, so I'm and I'm not you know. I haven't gone much deeper than that, but um, yeah, so. That's interesting. It's not quite the way. By the way, what, what translation are you using when you say vanity? Because I think a lot of the translations say vanity of vanities. Right. says the picture, all is vanity and striving after win when, as it opens. And I, I think it's the NIV that I was looking at that says meaningless, meaningless. Yes. And that's and that's the version that, that I kind of grew up with is the NIV 1984 version okay um but the vanity i think is king james yeah i think so vanity and i think uh, new american standard which i grew up with vanity of vanities new american standard oh is but it like, okay but i like meaningless meaningless uh similar meanings um but uh that a slightly different feel to a modern audience to say it's all meaningless it's all pointless so, yeah, so when you teach us, what are you, what kind of things are you going to hit? Well, so that outline you just gave was interesting. That's not the way I was going to approach it. I was going to go at the beginning and say that at the beginning, he sets out his disillusionment. It comes really out in chapter one. And I'm going to read a bunch of chapter one together as a, as a, you know, just as a group. That's where it starts out. Vanity of vanities or meaningless, meaningless, says the preacher, all, all, all is meaningless. And then early on in chapter two, he, he really goes through three ways that he tried to find meaning in life and how they all fail uh, through achievement, through great causes, and through pleasure. Um, and I should say, as always, as only universally, these a lot of my thoughts on this are informed by Tim Keller sermons that I've listened to on this. And this other website I often go to called preceptaustin.org, which is, summarizes a number of commentaries. But Keller, I remember, I remember sitting in his church listening. And when I was, we attended there and preaching on this and I remember him talking exactly those things. Like you know, there's three different ways you can live life. You can have an achievement. He used the word cluster, an achievement cluster, a cause cluster or a pleasure cluster. I'm not sure what the word cluster means or adds to it, but it was basically yeah. an achievement based life, a cause based life and a pleasure based life. And I immediately felt at the time 
because I had lived in these three different cities, that a cause-based life was like D.C., Washington, because we had lived in Washington before we went to New York. And everyone's there for causes. It's all cause-based, right? You're there to get your side elected. You've got to... Everyone says, this election we're facing is the most important of our lifetime because that's everything's at stake. we got to get our side in. And if you're not there for political parties, you're there for some lobby group, for some cause, right? You want to get... You're fighting for your cause to... That's interesting. In so DC, what, city, what city do people go for the achievement-based life? Is New York, that- baby. New York. New York. York. Okay. Think about New York. I might... Depends how much time I have next Saturday, Greg. I might tell some stories because there's like there's parts of New York history that a lot of New Yorkers I knew knew about. This like I gave it like this historical event that New York obviously was a Dutch colony originally, then so it was established. But sometime in the 1600s, the British sailed a couple warships down from Boston into the harbor, and everyone woke up and there's these gunships. New York is. You know, Manhattan's an island. It's exposed on the Hudson. And they woke up and there's these British gunships with these guns aimed at a mostly wooden city. And the mayor at the time said, we're going to fight. Everybody fight. And all the merchants said, oh, no, we're not. <laughs> no, 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 we're not. Uh, down with the Dutch flag, up with the British flag. And they, they, it was more like a hostile takeover than a war at all. And it's so... So there was no fighting. No fight. In fact, it all went on like so the merchants were open for business the very next day. Uh, it took a couple months for the British actually to, to actually, okay, we own this now. We're going to change the court system. And anyway, it was just a takeover and uh, almost a real estate deal. But the 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 part of it that is so emblematic for New York is that New York, and when I was in D.C., so much was all about the elections. And even if you didn't work in politics, you still thought about who's in power, who's not. It's, it meant everything. New York was like, yeah, you know, that one side wins, one side loses. Who cares? You know, there's a change in power. It's just okay. business. Am I long the market? Am I short the market? Is that good for fixed income? Is it good for equities? Am I, is it up, down? Am I, you know, how do I make money off this? I really don't care. And it's just, it's about money. It's about achievement. It's totally, there's a totally different world and different attitude than DC, which is all about, no, it's, this is so important. And then New Yorkers say, yeah, kind of laugh at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really important. How do I make yeah, good? How do I make money? That is really interesting. And then would you do, are you brave enough to call out some cities that are oh, yeah. pleasure based? LA. <laughs> LA. I, I spent a summer in LA uh, living with a friend of mine. Um, not that I know much about it. There's millions and millions of people there. I just spent one summer there, but it seemed like such a pleasure-based city. Everything is a you know. It, it's and that's a very big business climate. I know it's very and very intense and busy. So it's not like everyone's goofing off, but there's such a feeling of feeling good all the time, looking good all the time, almost like kind of being tanned and relaxed is your God given right in LA. Um, it just feels like a pleasure based city. Someone might argue, you might say, no, Vegas is sin city. That's pleasure based. I might have a better example, but I always thought LA was like that just because I had lived there for a time. That's so, interesting. That's interesting. Uh, well, one creature, thing I love about this, I, I love about this, I, you know, the, this book and the fact that he brings out this out is it's all about the void. It's all yeah. about the, the human, the void in every human heart. And yeah. I love chapter three, verse 11, where it yeah. says, God has put eternity in the hearts of men. Yes. And yet they cannot understand. They cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Yeah. That we were made for eternity 
we were we had god created made a void in us that only he can fill but we try to fill it through achievement or causes or pleasure yeah and we're constantly trying to fill that void and uh and when if we don't fill it with god our life feels so empty and meaningless yeah absolutely and i want to i'm going to bring up that verse and i that I'm going to bring up that verse in particular when I talk about the pursuit of pleasure and this the way that Solomon tried to find the meaning of life and pleasure. Um, uh, because it's a little different than when he talks about how he tried to find meaning and achievement and great causes. Mm. And the, the quick point about pleasure to kind of uh, that I want to make is, uh, again, from Tim Keller, is that when it, there's these great verses when he talks about a pleasure-based life, and it's um uh I think it's in chapter two, um uh, when he says, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. <clears throat> there's twice in that passage where he says, My mind still guided me with wisdom. Yeah. Like he says, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guided me with wisdom. And then he says again, in all this, my wisdom stayed by me. And then the passage you just read in chapter three, he said eternity in the human heart. And Keller explains this brilliantly. He says the, the problem with pleasure is that it can it's just never enough to drown out the, the quiet voice in the back of your head that says it's all pointless. It's all meaningless. In other words, you cannot... You can't get enough hedonism to drown that out. Um, you can't out pleasure that notion, and that. So I think people read that passage and say, "He says I did this. I had all these wives. I did all these things. Gave me life to pleasure, and all this my wisdom stood by me." And they say that does not that doesn't sound like wisdom. That's that's, that's ridiculous. He's foolish. Why did you do all these things? That's like foolishness, but it's not. The whole point is saying, "In all this, my wisdom stood by me." Is that even while he was trying to drown out, drown it out, and trying to find his complete meaning through just endless pleasure, bottomless pleasure, it was not. It's not enough. The it, the the notion that life is still pointless breaks through, and you you can't drown it out. Yeah, and it's and it's easy. It's easy to look at other people's pleasures and be like, "That's so stupid." Yes. <laughs> like that's that's crazy that that's yes. what they're tr that they're giving their lives to. I don't. If you, I don't know. Every, if you everyone's except your own. That's exactly right. And so uh, it's, uh, in the and, talk. it's a, and that's true with all three of those areas: achievements, uh, causes. Because some causes seem stupid. They do. I uh, so I, I remember when we lived in D.C. There was a, a a woman who worked for the can industry. She was in the lobbyist, and she kind of took the job because it's a good paying job. He said, our whole reason for existing is to get people to use more cans and not bottles. <laughs> That's why we're here. And they had a big deal. They were produced a commercial. She said, look, look, here's our commercial. Our commercials on TV. It was some guy choosing a can instead of a bottle saying, see, my drink is cold and the aluminum can, whatever, like push the cans. And That's uh, interesting. even she thought, well, that's kind of silly, but it's a job. And you uh, have causes like that today, you know, like not using plastic straws. Some people think that's really important. That's a big cause. I'm saying I'm doing my part to save the oceans because I don't use plastic straws. Absolutely. Right. 
And other people say, what difference does it make if you use a straw? It's no How about just not using a straw? Yeah. How about Some just people... sipping from the cup? I raise my glass to you right now, Greg. Absolutely. <laughs> but, no straw uh, for the record. So... But that point, by the it, way, I think just if you ever see people towing things on the highway behind them, some big contraption, whatever it is, it's a boat, it's a four by four, it's something you think, what? Something that you would never do. And yeah. someone just spent a ton of money and they're towing their big contraption thing to some other place to do something else. They're like, all the hassle, all the money to do that thing. And the phrase I I, I did come up with this, this is original. So I've said this for years. Um, if it's, and I'll, I'm going to use it when I give the talk is stupid is what I wouldn't do. Yeah. Stupid is what stupid. I wouldn't do. Stupid is what I wouldn't do. If I wouldn't do it, it's stupid. Right. I would, I would never go camping like that. I would never go for the four by four. I wouldn't get a jet ski. I, who, who toes behind the big boat or whatever it is that you wouldn't do. Yeah. That's right? so true. That's so true. And, and don't you think that applies to all those areas though? achievement causes and, and pleasure. Um, it definitely does. And I hadn't thought about it until you just mentioned it right now, but you're right. I was going to use some, about some people that are like, they're what they're trying to achieve, like getting in the Guinness book of world's records, you know, for killing, you know, I, I don't, I don't know, uh, juggling the most uh, basketballs or something. Um, some of those, some of those achievements seem so, so, so silly, oh. but what, what, which of these, which of those three, do you feel like you tend to fall towards? Oh, achievement. Yeah. Achievement. It's always been that way. I mean, yeah. so that's, that's kind of how I feel too. You feel that way too? Yeah. Because I yeah. think in ministry, like, you know, that, you know, being successful. Really? Uh, is, is, yeah. I mean, you, you're, you really want, you want to be, you want to be successful. Interesting. Um, which <laughs> is something, you know, you fight because I think, biblically it's not about worldly success it's about faithfulness absolutely faithfulness is what matters there's many many godly men and women who've served in really small ministries but they've made incredible impacts yeah just because they've been faithful to what god has called them to do at the same time there's been people that have had incredibly large seemingly impacts and successful in the world worldly eyes you know they get on tv and yep and then you find out their lives are like you know they're 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 not really um yeah they're they're in it for the money it's empty they're yeah right yeah it's just it's just empty but um that's interesting greg because i wouldn't have thought of that i would have i would have i would have put you down as cause-based because of the ministry, it always seems like you could always say, well, I mean, we, we both know that it's not the way to draw your righteousness, but it's easy to say, I am not caught up like those people in their achievement. I am working for the Lord for a yeah. great cause. Well, I think cause, causes, you know, it's interesting to think about just Christian ministry in general in all three areas, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because there's definitely, a, I mean, maybe those two are kind of equal pulls on me. Yeah. Um, but, um, and then the pleasure, I, you know, how does pleasure work out in, uh, um, you know, and for somebody that's, 
you know, maybe be a driver for you. It's uh, I, I remember, and I, I think I want to try to tell the story if I remember it when I'm speaking, I remember witnessing to a guy in college and I was Larry Crabb's books were out at the time. Remember Larry Crabb? Yes. And he had his big, and his friend. wife is, Oh, his ex-wife. I'm a crab. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Larry, if you're listening, Larry, if you're listening, we're so sorry. Yeah, actually, Larry, that was a joke. I know. I, I don't. I think Larry was very faithful to his wife, and and he he actually wrote some really good stuff. But yeah, what was the I, what was the? Do you I remember the name of the book? Book? No, it was his. What I think it was his first book it was a big hit in Christian circles. But this was like the '80s, right? This is a while ago. But his big catchphrase was that everybody lives for two things, significance and security. Everybody craves two things. And, and that just made so much sense intuitively to people. People were like, wow, I caught on like wildfire. People are saying, do you realize there's two things people live for? Significance and security. And I remember I was sharing Christ with a friend of mine, and I was talking about that, you know, hoping that he would say, how do I find significance and security as well, be able to share the gospel? And I said, you know, there's two things people live for, significance and security. He said, what about having fun? So I just want to have a good time. I don't care about that stuff. Yeah, like <laughs> I'm an 18-year-old college student. I just want to have a good time. Like, what's what the heck? And they realized, like, a lot of people don't live for that. They live for, you know. And I think, actually, this is kind of predominant view now. This whole Everyone says this generation lives for experiences. Everyone says they, you only go around once, YOLO, right? You only go around once, so... Um, and, uh, you got a, the book you mentioned might be inside out, inside out. That is what it is. Larry Crabb. So, yeah. And then there was that book. The same time was the search for significance. Um, oh, really? There was another big book that was, had the same. Okay. Same truth, but the, you're right. You're right. The, the, there is a, so. In it's, but it's very heavy. It's very meaty. It's like thinking people say, you're right. Significance. But a lot of people say, bag that. I just want um, everybody. You know, remember that song in the, it was 80s or 90s. Was, Everybody's working for the weekend. Yeah. Remember, uh, oh, another song. Um, What's her name? Cheryl Crow. All I want to do is have some fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm here to tell you I'm not the only one. Right, right. right. And uh, just have a good time. Right. Uh, yeah. I think it's, so, so I think, are yeah. we saying, are we saying that, like these three areas that come out in the book of Ecclesiastes are still relevant today. Absolutely. Because I think that people, yeah, absolutely. Because what he's trying to say is, first of all, we should have started this way. Um, He's trying to look at life under the sun, right? So under the sun. So from like an earthly perspective, Right. Not the heavenly perspective, the earthly perspective, right? Under the sun. is like, Let's think of what this word is like if there's no God. Like apart from God. Apart so from like God. Apart from God, you look at life and you you try to make as much money as you can. But what is it all for? You end up, you can't take it with you. Right. So it's meaningless. Apart from, apart from God, you, you give yourself to a cause. Right. You work for that cause and then, you know, it's um yeah 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 that's yeah yeah, that's that's really that's really important to so is would you say that that's part of like the wisdom of solomon like he's he He, 
when when he was when he's writing this book he's he's basically trying to help us see that like remove god from the equation right and life no matter how successful how good you are or what you give your life to it's you can't find any meaning in it let's just say so he's yeah exactly so he's saying look remove god from the equation let's look at life under the sun not the heavenly perspective earthly perspective you know so but without God, I will try to find meaning in the three major ways people try to find meaning in their lives, right? A pleasure-based life, first though, a, an achievement-based life, a cause-based life, and then a pleasure-based life. And he said, I'm here to tell you, it won't work. It's still meaningless. It's still pointless. You find that you can achieve all these great things. And we can go through some passages. You can achieve these great things. You're going to leave it to a fool who comes after you. You could create all these great causes no, and no, no matter what you do, no one will remember you. And the generations that's come that won't remember you, they won't be remembered by the later later generations that come after them. Everything will be forgotten. Everything's pointless. And Kelly does such a great job of pointing this out. He'll say what he's doing is he's he's stepping back and taking the big picture. He's saying, I looked at it all, right? Not in part, because in any given part, you could say, this part of my life makes sense. Right, this one individual component of my life makes sense. So like, like, why do you go to work? Well, so I can uh, afford to pay the rent. Well, why to pay the rent? So I can have a place to, to sleep. Well, why do you go to sleep? So I can be rested. Why do you need to be rested? So I can go to work. Mm-hmm. In any one component of that, you could say that has meaning. But when you look at the step back and look at the whole thing, the way the Ecclesiastes writer does. He says, you look at the whole picture altogether. It's all meaningless. It doesn't make sense. There's no hope. There's no point to life. And you could try these ways of doing it, achievement-based, cause-based, or pleasure-based, and you're going to find, like I did, it's still pointless. There's no meaning. Now, what, what makes it tricky, and this is the hard part of Ecclesiastes, is you know he starts off by saying, let me look at life under the sun. So you could say, well, let's just, you could do that now as a thought experiment. Get Christians together and you could say, well, let's just imagine there's no God right? Like the John Lennon song, imagine there's no heaven, right? And let's just talk about what that would look like, what that world would look like. But it's not a book where he doesn't mention God, not like the book of Esther, where the book, where the word God never shows up. He talks about God a lot. That's what I was, that's, that was one of the things I was thinking of as you were talking is, yeah, he kind of sprinkles God throughout the book. It's not even like, it's not the punchline at the end. It's like, oh, he kind of just like, like the whole chapter, like 90% of it will be about just that earthly perspective, but then he'll put like a couple verses, Yep. you know, about, he, he does, he mentions God. Do you want to, any of those like really stand out to you in your, in your research or yeah, there's mention, a, mention some of those verses? If you can find some now, but it's, it is, it's very, it's so it's confusing. It's so it's a confusing enough if you're. If you read it for the first time, you don't get that under the sun part. It's super confusing. You say, this book seems to say life is meaningless and pointless, and everybody dies, and that's, you know, there's no afterlife, and so there's no point to anything. You know, there's no difference between human beings and animals because they're all the same because everybody dies. And you say, this seems so inconsistent with the whole rest of the Bible. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And then you say, no, someone explains to you, no, 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 but he's saying it's under the sun, you see. It's all about what life is like if there's no God. Oh, okay, I get that. 
So like chapter two, verses 20, starting in verse 24. Yes. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see is from the hand of God. So right. there's that God, there's that heavenly perspective for without God who can eat or find enjoyment to get, to yeah. give the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it, Yeah, it's cool. So the image I have, well, someone, uh, 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 our friend, Dr. Bob Mosteller, actually gave me this uh, image. He said, it's think about Ecclesiastes like someone who's trying to explain how the sky works, but they're inside one of those like uh, sports domes, like a soccer dome where they kind of pump it up and it's opaque and you can't see anything. And maybe there's a couple of holes in it. So you, I see a little ray of light coming through. There's a drop of water coming through, but I, so I'm trying to, I can't really see. And that, and that, that, that's the perspective. Try and that kind of person is trying to describe how the atmosphere works. I thought that's a pretty good analogy, but I, another one is like, I think of like cloud cover because we're here in, um, where we live in the Northeast Ohio, Northeast Ohio, uh, second most cloud cover in the United States. Uh, <laughs> the preferred, not the preferred, but the most common weather pattern is overcast gray skies. And you think about someone like that under overcast trying to explain it. And I feel like he's like staying below the clouds for most of it. And then going above the clouds once in a while and catching a glimpse of what the blue sky is like. Hmm. And then dropping down below the clouds and talking about, so he's like he's going above and below the clouds through is the whole a progression. Is there a progression? I like, don't. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. I see the progression. Like there's there's some there's a conclusion at the end. A definite like the conclusion, conclusion at the end. Do you feel like is do you feel like that's the real punch? The progression probably is. He says in chapter the, the things about the cause based life, achievement based life, pleasure based life are in chapter two. So chapter one is like it's all meaningless. Chapter two is very much. I tried these three ways to find meaning in life. They don't work. Um, then, like, there's a number of chapters, like the next uh, um, through, like, through 11. There are his just wisdom, his wisdom sayings, like like Proverbs. And some of those are, like, above the clouds and some are below the clouds. Right? So he'll say things like, you know, the um, whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might, because there's no activity in the grave where you're going. Like, there's no afterlife. You know, say, surely a live dog is better than a dead lion because death conquers everything. Like, okay, that that part's not, that's below the sun thinking. I get it. I I, I got that. But then other things he's saying, like, you know, have great composure in front of the king because composure allays great offenses. Okay, good good wisdom. That sounds like, you know, timeless wisdom. Maybe it's above the clouds. But he's constantly drifting above and below the clouds through that wisdom part. And it's kind of hard to, like, understand the wisdom part of it but understand that he's still taking that perspective sometimes of dipping below the clouds and looking at looking at it as if there's no God. So I think that's even if you get the under the sun thing, it's a, still a challenge as a Christian to read Ecclesiastes. How does the the gospel apply in, in, in this in this book? Or I'm I'm thinking of like your two line illustration. How do you how do you see that? Well, 
It's a great, thanks for bringing it up. I wasn't even going to bring it up in the talk, but the, the, I think so much of the achievement cause and pleasure are the single line, right? Especially achievement cause you can really see uh, being the single line, maybe so not. Just, ex just explain, we, we, we in this podcast, we often contrast a difference between a single line way of living the Christian life and a double line way of living the Christian life. So explain that super quick. Yeah. So the, the single line is, it's a simple graph where holiness is the vertical axis and time is the horizontal axis. And you could draw that out, right? Two lines, and then it, take another line, start at the bottom left corner, make it a diagonal 45 degree angle up, up and to the right. And that's a picture of the Christian life. It's a progression of holiness, getting better and better all the time. And in that view of the Christian life, um, actually that view looks like every religion, right? You just follow the commandments and you become more holy over time, a better person over time. But the Christian single line way is where there's a little cross at the base of the line or at the base where Jesus starts you off in the Christian life. And then the rest is up to you to become a better Christian over time. So it's all about your performance. And then so achievement-based life and cause-based lives are based ways of saying, I don't need Jesus as a savior. I'm going to be my own savior. I'm going to get a life. I'm going to have a great life. I'm going to find meaning in life and because I achieve these great things or I live for these great causes. So, and I'm not sure, Greg, maybe pleasure fits in there. Maybe pleasure is another, it's because it's an organized, it's a way to find meaning in your life to say, I know my life will be worthwhile if I get to these things on my bucket list, experience these things I always wanted to experience. You know, I do these great, these things and I go these places and it's another way to look at back and say, my life was worthwhile because, you know, I did this stuff. And so in that sense, it is still self-justification. It's still a functional savior, right? Um, it's not really going up a line of holiness, but it's still finding a savior. You're being your own savior. So um, anyway, the gospel is totally different, right? The gospel is, without drawing the whole line verbally like we sometimes do in the podcast, but the gospel is basically a progression of your awareness. So you, there's an upward sloping line, but it's a progression of not your performance, but your growing awareness of his holiness, how holy he is. And a downward sloping line, which is your growing awareness over time of your own sinfulness, your brokenness, your how sinful you really are. And the gospel of the cross doesn't start you off. The cross fills the gap between those two lines. And the gap between them gets bigger and bigger over time, not smaller and smaller. Uh, and you, so the cross that fills the gap in the illustration grows and grows and grows because the gospel gets, gets bigger in your life all the time, not smaller, not starting you off in the Christian life, but the whole Christian life. So do you see that coming out in this book or the? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Where? So, Yeah. I'm not sure I'll do the illustration next week when we talk about it, but I think the gospel comes out after doing all these things. He says, all this fails, right? Achievement causes pleasure all fails. Then you get to chapter nine. And I think um, you were asking me before if I had a favorite verse in Ecclesiastes. This is, this is probably it. But these verses Hey, let me read it to you. Chapter 9, verse 7. And I'll, I'll start there. Uh, it says, Go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Let, let me, I'll stop there for a second. Um. Uh, no, it's worth reading the whole thing. I'll just keep going. This, that was verse 8. I'll read verse 9. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love, all the days of your fleeting life, which he has given you under the sun, 
For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. And then verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Verse I quoted a moment ago. Here's how the gospel plays in there, Greg. When it says in chapter 9, verse 7, go your way, eat your bread and happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, enjoy your life. For God has already approved your works. You have to look at that verse and say, how does that verse, how does, is that above the cloud thinking or below the line, below the cloud thinking? Is And I have to interpret that verse in light of all the rest of scripture, which is how do you, how do you get to a place where God has already approved your works? That's the gospel. Yeah. The, the, the way you're going to have all your works approved is the gospel, Right. And, and, and you're going to say, if 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 I give him my life to Jesus, give him my heart to him, I've I've stopped trusting in myself for salvation. I've stopped looking at things like my achievements, the causes I fought for, to justify my life. I put my trust in him. Right? Then God has God has approved your works. So this, Greg, is all about the one of the S's of the gospel we talk about: sequence, sequence. God has already approved your works, and once He has. Go ahead and enjoy life. You can enjoy life. It's okay. For God has already approved your works. So right after that, enjoy life with the woman whom you love all, all the days of your fleeting life that she's given you. And then in chapter 10, what about working hard and achievement, right? And fighting for causes, right? Chapter 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it. Do it with all your might. Do it with all your might. And it's because, God, why? Because God's already approved your works. So if you're in, the, in Christ, in the gospel, in sequence, you can rest because all your works have already been approved. You don't need to earn. You don't need to save yourself by going right fighting for some great cause. It's too hard. You don't need to work. So you, you can rest from that. You don't have to work so hard to achieve incredible things to say my life was worthwhile. Go your way. God's already approved your works. Now, if you read that old verse out on its own, like I said, you pull it out, you say, so like every human being on earth, this God's approved their works. No, that's universal salvation. That's not what the rest of the Bible teaches. Right. Right? They're not all sons of God. We're not all children of God. We're children of God who've put our trust in his name, right? Yeah. So, but once he once he has approved you, God has already approved your works. Eat your bread in happiness and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. So that's one place the gospel shows up. There's another one. Where's that? Chapter it's the, 12? Yeah, it's the conclusion, right. And um, uh, uh, one of Keller's sermons on Ecclesiastes is called The Problem of Ethics. And he really, really pulls this out in that sermon. And he says, is the verse is uh, chapter 12, verse 13. Do you have it there so you can read it, by the way? Yeah. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Right. God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. And what Keller pulls out is that he said he doesn't stop there and say, here's the conclusion, keep the commandments. Be a moral person, be a good person. He says, and if you read it that way, you'll miss it. He says, yeah, fear be God. And keep his commandments. And what he pulls out, he says, theologically, there's two ways fear is used in the Bible. One way is when you your fear of harm which is, you know, cowering in fear, which is very self-centered. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me. The other way he said is more often used in the Bible is fear is awe and wonder. 
you probably study this too theologically, right? That the notion of what does it mean to fear the Lord? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it doesn't mean to be afraid of him. Right. It means to be in awe of him. But all and all have his and, Yeah. And if you're in awe of him, it changes your life. It's being you you're changed. You you've Absolutely. been changed. He's changed you. And that's the uh for us on this side of the cross, I mean the if you really understand the gospel, it changes you. Yes, because you're in awe, not just of his power, how he could crush you like a bug, but <laughs> you know, you're in awe of his grace. You're in awe right. of his love. Why would he love a sinner like me? It's amazing grace, right? So I'm in awestruck by that. I'm just, and, it, and then it's not a, it's not a self-centered fear. Oh no, what could happen to me? It's like a, it's an other sense. It's a God-centered fear because I'm thinking about Him, what He's done, and in yeah. response to that, keep His commandments. It's again, it's the sequence of the gospel, right? I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Yeah, that's why the Apostle Paul could say, "May I never boast except in the cross of the of of Christ." Right and. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Power of God. Um, that's right. Yeah, that's really, that's really cool. Well, make sure you bring that out in your teaching. Well, I hope so. I hope that that fear of God thing, because I do think there's a couple of verses like that in here, and that comes a lot in Proverbs too. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord. What's the fear of the? It sounds like I should cower in fear of you know God is about to punish me. And um, it's really actually in that sermon, Greg, Greg Keller spends like 15 or 20 minutes really teasing this point out. I'll cover it really quickly. I think it's because I think it's really significant in the conclusion. Um, but it's so important to get, I fear God and keep his commandments, right? Yeah. So. Well, is there anything else you want to mention? Uh, you want to talk about money is the answer to everything? Oh, yeah, money. Money. There's a lot about money in this, and you're a banker. That's right. That's right. So, that's right. are you convicted by these verses about money, or? Well, always. I'm trying. I think this. This. It wasn't a matter you're of kind giving your your life to money. You're, 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 you're... <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, preacher. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, there are some interesting <laughs> verses here, like chapter five, verse ten. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Ah. Wealth is never satisfied with his income. Right. Um, the and then verse twelve: the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. And then verse fifteen: naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and naked and and as he comes, so he just departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his in his hand. Right. Um, right. There's a lot of a lot of uh, interesting verses about about money. What what do you think about just what are your thoughts about just like the biblical view of money? Well, first, what you tell the story of Rockefeller? What what's that phrase he has about how much? Oh, is yeah, enough? well, they, there's that story of Rockefeller that somebody asked him one one time after he had you know created so much wealth that he you know wouldn't didn't have a care in the world like how much more do you need and he just said the, what i've heard what i remember is like just just a little bit more mm -hmm. just a little bit more and i and i don't know if he said like you know if he said a dollar amount or if he said just a little bit more but and there's a verse in here that says whoever has money never has money enough yeah 
I was trying to find that one. It's in this. It's in Ecclesiastes. Yeah, it's like a, just so, a little more. Yeah, but the, um, yeah. So here's this: just thoughts on money, and I I think I might share this. If not, I can start with you now. We can always do in the the debrief later. But um, like the verse ten, verse nineteen is the one that says money is the the answer to everything. Do you mm. have that? Do you have that up? 10 verse 19. And I, I, this is the one. So what I'm going to probably talk about this this way. First, first of all, is, is the professor's disillusionment with life. What that says. Then the way he tries to find meaning in three things that don't work. Achievement causes and pleasure. And then secondly, the professor's wisdom, just because a lot of this book is just about sayings and his wisdom. And then the professor's conclusion. <clears throat> the very end. We've already talked about the conclusion. But this is part of the wisdom, right? So um, read 10 verse 19. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. And that's in the Bible. Yeah, that's crazy. It's crazy. As I be real Ecclesiastes and say, this is, why is this in the Bible? Does it make any sense? Yeah. Money is the answer to everything. What do you think? What do you think it means? Um the way I would, my first thought on this is that, you know, that's again, the perspective of somebody without God, right? This is, this is a perspective of, you could almost hear somebody saying this. Oh, all like, the time. Um, yeah. Hey, you know, we, we have parties so we can laugh and we have wine so we can, you know, be merry and forget about our problems and, Yep. But money's the answer for everything. Money's the answer uh, to everything. Uh, if, you know, you can hear. So to me, it's like a perspective of somebody um, apart from God. But am I wrong? Partly. So I'll tell you that, first of all, the way, it, um, and you can coach me and tell me, I'll tell you this for the podcast. You tell me for the uh, talk. Because I want to like, say the, the way, it, it sounds like a New Yorker's approach to money. Okay. That's like the way a New York artist would say, absolutely. If you said that to a New Yorker, they would say, money is the answer to everything. Everything does boil down to money. If you look at it like a you look at a beautiful building, that's that building is a machine that makes the land pay. You look at a, a field of crops, that's that, that is grown not because it's a pretty crop, it's a cat, it's grown for cash, right? You're a some farmers doing it so they can pay the debt on the field and enough money to buy seed for next year and everything boils down to money everything's economics um the uh the one of my favorite movies called margin call it's about you know wall street and um there's a scene in there where two guys go uh to, they're sent to go find somebody and they say hey, you'll find him in this strip club and they go to the strip club and they're in there and they're looking at this dancer right in front of them and they don't actually show her the movie thankfully but the, the they don't show the, the woman but she's dancing, and the and the, the 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 guys look at each other, and they say, "How much do you think she makes? What do you think she pulls down a night? I bet she makes fifteen hundred dollars a night. Fifteen hundred if she right dances to that's not a bit." They start talking about the money she makes, and they're not attracted to her. They're not engaged in that. They're not uh, wowed by. It. They're just boiling all down the money, and it, it's such a perfect moment in the film because it ca captures the New York feel perfectly. Everything's just about money. So, is it possible that Solomon is speaking here? In the voice of a unwise king, 
Actually, I think he's speaking in the voice of a wise king. Okay. So go back and read the context around it, and I'll kind of tell you what the commentaries say. It's not. It's actually not that mysterious at all. You want you want me to read it out loud? Yeah, read it out loud. Start at verse seventeen. Verse go through 17. twelve. Okay. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of noble birth and whose princes eat at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. If a man yep. is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes life merry, but money is the answer for everything. Do not revile the king, even in your thoughts, or curse the rich in your bedroom. Because a bird in the air may carry your words, and a bird on the wing may report what you say. He's talking about kingship. He's talking about running a kingdom. He starts out by saying, Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility. You princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. And then the verse 18 says, uh, talks about things falling apart. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Talk about bad leadership. Yeah. There's a uh, sleep at the post, and there the whole kingdom starts. Everything starts falling apart. And in 19, there's a verse that really troubles people. You know, men prepare a meal for enjoyment. Wine makes life merry, and money's the answer to everything. He's talking about those bad kings. That's the way bad kings run their kingdom. They just sit around and eat. It's like you read right with the verse right before it, where like through through indolence the rafters sag, through slackness the house leaks. The whole thing falls apart because they're sitting around eating eating and drinking. You know, and they're living to and and living for money. And money's the answer to everything. That's what that's a, it, it's talking about what bad kings do. And goes because verse 20 goes right back to talking about kingship. And your furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king. Right? Uh, yeah. If you pull yeah. 19 out of context completely, you say, wait a second. He says money's the answer to everything. What he's talking about is how to run a kingdom. Yeah. Right. No, that makes that that's definitely I think yeah, that, that's definitely true right there. Yeah. So once I and the commentaries pull that out, they say he's just He's when he it's the bad kings who say money's the answer to everything. He's trying to give you an example of how not to run a kingdom. So it's actually not that difficult. That's cool. Yeah. Are you going to bring that out? I think so. I think so. It'll give me a chance to talk about the New York approach to money. So, um, which is kind of fun. I think this has been a good, a good discussion. I'm excited to have you teach on it. And we didn't cover Song of Solomon. Do you want to say anything about Song of Solomon? Well, just in, in like two or three minutes, Song of Solomon is interesting because it's love poetry. And there's some uh, kind of, you know, it's, you know, very, uh, very, very intense. And there's some graphical image there. I've, I've heard that the Hebrew actually brings out the sexuality more than the English does, because usually English translators don't bring all that out. And when I when I started studying it, Greg, to get ready to talk on it, basically, I found it was kind of startled to learn there's two very strong points of view on Song of Solomon. One is that it is absolutely literal. Yeah, it, all it is is a love story between a boy and a girl. And I, uh, I think in this case, you probably say boy and girl said a man and a woman because they're young. Um, but it's a, just a love story and it's there to be a love story in the Bible about uh, male-female attraction. And it's the lesson maybe is that it's okay to be have romantic attraction and that sexuality is not bad. That's all. It, that's all it means, and you should take it very literally. That's all it means. And the other point of view is allegorical, and saying it's really there in the Bible to talk about God's love for His people, 
So, and actually in Jewish tradition, that's always been the way they've looked at it. It's all about the God's love for the Jewish people, for his, for his people. And generally in Christian tradition, uh, I think I, I've heard that, and I'm I, should I bring this out in the talk or not? But in the Catholic tradition, it's, it's Mary is often brought into it. Um, but I'm not Catholic, and I really can't speak to the Catholic tradition with any authority, so maybe I'll leave that out. But the um, Protestant view has always been very much that it's about Christ and the Church, very allegorical. But in studying this, Greg, I found a very interesting distinction was that uh, in the Protestant Reformation, Luther liked to look at things like this in the Bible very allegorically. Calvin did not. Oh, wow. Calvin looked at, no, he did hated allegorical interpretations of scripture, said that somehow that took away from, like, I think it's because he thought it took away from the authority of scripture. You're just making it, you're, al, al, you know, analogizing to all this other stuff. And that's not what it says. It just says, you know, girl meets boy, girl falls in love with boy, boy meets girl. That's what it, that's all it is. That's all it means. And I don't know if Calvin actually said that kind of commentary about Song of Songs, but that's, the more literal way that he was advocating. like, And I think so. So I think some Protestant traditions that come more out of the Calvinist tradition, like say the Baptist tradition, other yeah. ones, have more of that view to say, and, and when I studied this, there were lots of strong literalists. I thought I thought the pretty universal view was that this is about Christ and the church and about right. the love affair God has for us. But there are lots of strong people like John MacArthur said, absolutely not. Literalville. This is literal. That's all it is. And in our in our Bible study, the speaker who just spoke before me, he mentioned that last week, last Saturday morning, yesterday, that it's all it is is literal. That's just it's just a little love poem that happens to be the Bible, and we should take it for on face value for what it is. With the feeling that to do anything more is somehow to not hold scripture in high regard, to look yeah. for analogy. Yeah, for allegories. Like it's you're going down a slippery slope, and all of a sudden, the story of Joan is not literal, and it's yeah, and crazy start... maybe not literal, and yeah, you're right. Yeah, right, right, and so they don't like that. No, I don't have a problem with it being allegorical. Well, um, so you think about, um, I got, I should, I got to get chapter and verse. Where is it? Is it Paul or is it no? The in the oh, it's in Hebrews. They start talking about. Hagar and Sarah, and one corresponds to Jerusalem, and one's the people of the the Jewish nation, one corresponds to, in other words, within the New Testament, there's Old Testament reading, reading of the Old Testament in an allegorical way. Yeah. So legitimizing the notion that it's okay to look at it allegorically, like what is it meaning? Maybe on the face it does mean those things, but what is the meaning under it? But the, the, the tension here was very interesting. A lot of commentators were feisty against the allegorical way. Like, no, 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 don't read anything more than Song of Songs. It's just about romantic love and sex, and that's it. Um, okay, well, there's some good lessons there. Like, And by the way, here's a, here's one big lesson, if it is literalville. The notion of that romantic love should be between like men, like husband and wife, is really recent in human history. And I'm not, you can Google this, I'm not making this up, but people say the notion that romantic love is associated with marriage it's only a couple hundred years old. For thousands of years, people are like, well, you you get you do arranged marriages for for to build up your family, to build up your kingdom, to for business purposes, basically. You might have romantic feelings, but it had nothing to do with who you were married to. And so oh. you might say, from thousands of years ago, God was saying, I want romantic love to exist between husband and wife. I like that. 
And that's where the romantic love is supposed to be. And that that relationship is supposed to be a romantic one. But for thousands of years, really up until the last couple hundred years, people did not associate romantic love with marriage. Like it's and it's not me. Secular literature. There's tons of articles talking about. This. I actually remember hearing that in grad school, people talking about that, and I just tried to you know just recently Googled it to make sure I remember that right. And there's lots of articles talking about that. It's like yep, yep, no, romantic love was not 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 associated with marriage until recently. So maybe that is one good literal interpretation that comes out of it. Hey, you know, you should be romantically attracted, and it ties in with the song of. The size of the Ecclesiastes verse, it says, enjoy life with the woman who you love all these days of your life. And then there's a verse in Proverbs more explicitly says, enjoy life with the wife of your youth. Right? So um, you should be romantically in love with your spouse. And okay, that's a good literal interpretation. But I think the allegorical one is deeper. And I, I personally believe like it really is. The reason there's a love story in the middle of the Bible is because the whole Bible is all about his love story. Yes. Right, it's the all whole about Jesus. That's right, and this this is like kind of in the middle of the Bible because of that. Right, the whole thing is a love story, where he uh, he had us and he lost us. Yeah, he had to die to get his bridegroom back. Right, it's a, the whole thing's a love story. That's I think that's why Song of Songs is there. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail Stay tuned for our next episode and remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.